0: It's good to be here. I think uh, Dick was reminding me one of the last times I was here was actually um, the Sunday after the election. And he said, how fortunate you get to also preach the Sunday after the inauguration. I thought, that's fantastic. And I appreciate the prayer uh, very much. Because um, regardless of how you felt about the inauguration, and as... um, as we were reminded during the prayer. Um, For some people, there was a sense of elation and hope, and for others people, um, a deep sense of pain and despair. Um, And you could see that played out, right? From um, inauguration balls and excitement one night to um, marches really not just around the country, but around the world uh, by women the next day, that we live in incredibly polarized, divisive, painful, painful, Uh, period in our nation's life. Uh, It's played out in our politics, it's played out um, in the ways that we relate around any number of issues. Right, so um, we've remarked on multiple times um, the consistent pain of the black community in the United States that we've been listening to um, in intense ways and new ways over the last uh, year and a half. Um, You're hearing the pains of the world as we look at continued massacres, of Christians in various places in war and in um, the Syrian refugee crisis. As a church, what do you do? As a church, how do we best engage this? The challenge, of course, is it's easy for us to assume that if we were to engage these things, we should just take our best ideas and move forward, but the reality is even the church is divided on how best to address these issues, how best to grapple with the complexity and the hopes and the fears and the aspirations and the ways those collide in ways that um, there's no clear compromise, no clear best way forward, which is purely win-win. And far too often, I suspect... um, the church has just tried to be smart about it, but we don't know how to be wise. I think we wrestle with that individually, right, as you think about issues confronting your family, on how best to bring about reconciliation where there's been pain, about how to uh, redeem and restore long-term hopes, of how to build new doors and new opportunities, and you think, I'm not sure, I could be smart, but I don't know how to be wise in a situation like this. I suspect for all of us, um, we're not so far into a new year that we're done, I suspect, reflecting on the year that's passed and the year that is to come. And if your family is like my family, if you're like me, there are a number of things that will happen in 2017 that seem complicated, difficult, a little unanswerable now. And you think, I know I'm pretty smart. I don't know how to be wise in this situation. What's our hope as individual Christians and as a community of Christians, the church, both here and around the world, in addressing both the difficult issues that we face individually, but also the broader issues in the context in which we find ourselves, the neighborhoods and um, cities and states and nations and world that we live in. Part of the good news, of course, of the gospel is not just that God is at work in the world, but he invites us to participate in it, and then he gives us the Holy Spirit in order to begin to guide us in the process of knowing how best to become the kind of people that the Lord desires to be in this world and in our lives and in these uh, relationships right now, but also what are we supposed to do within them? And so my understanding from Dick is um, we're beginning a series to look at who is the Holy Spirit, and then how do we find guidance and wisdom from him. Because in a world that's so filled with pain and sin, in a world where um, people's aspirations are regularly crushed, in a world where um, the very thing that elates some discourages others, in a world where um, even in the course of this worship time, hundreds if not thousands will die for things that are preventable and avoidable. To know who we should be and how we should live really requires more than just us being smart as a community. We're self-interested as a community, but we need to become the community of Jesus, led by the spirit of Jesus. And so we come to the passage that we're looking at here in John 14. Now, Jesus has been talking to his disciples um, in this kind of Last Supper conversation. He's been telling them that he's going to leave. He's been saying to them that his deepest desire is that they would love one another. And if they would love one another, then the world would know. That he is the Messiah. He is the one who has come. But here in um, chapter 14, as he tells them, but I'm leaving you, they feel an incredible sense of loss. Right, Because if they have any hope at all, it's that, well, Jesus is here with us. And if Jesus is here, it would all be okay. Right, Because you figure, if Jesus were here at this church with us, then many of our anxieties about our personal problems and our relational problems and the practical problems we face would begin to fade away, wouldn't it? Because you'd think, well, Jesus is here. If he was actually physically here, we would say, well, you know, you just come and go ahead and preach, and I'm sure he'd have a word that would immediately cut to your heart. You'd think that is exactly what I'd need to hear because of course Jesus was saying it and that would make it a lot more simple, right? And then we probably would because we're sacrificial that way. think, you know what? We can't keep Jesus here at Ossining. That'd be a little bit too selfish. Let's trot him down to Washington, D.C and try to get him somewhere in front of Congress, or at the White House, or at least in front of somebody who has some authority. because you figure if Jesus were walking the halls of Congress, maybe things would be different, right? If he happened to stop by the Supreme Court, maybe things would change there. If he managed to get in to speak to our new president, maybe because he's Jesus, things would be different. And the disciples felt similar, right? Because if you had Jesus there in the middle of Roman-occupied Jerusalem, you thought, well, things are going to be different soon. And if you were facing death or destruction, pain or disease, you'd think, well, things will be different. Jesus will be here soon. And then Jesus says, uh, I'm leaving. And so you think, um, why? And when, what? Right? And, and you could feel this huge vacuum, Right in their minds, Uh, you were supposed to fill this hole uh, in us, in this community, in this world. You were supposed to be there, and he goes, "No, I'm, I'm leaving." And so they begin to panic. What are we going to do? And this is what Jesus says to them in chapter fourteen, beginning at verse fifteen. If you love me, keep my commandments. And you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to them. What's fascinating is Jesus goes, look, I'm leaving, but... but." I'm sending another counselor to you. And as you begin to look at the language that we see here in this passage, part of what is important to note about how Jesus describes the Holy Spirit who is to come is this. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of Jesus himself. Notice how um, closely Jesus ties this coming spirit to himself, right? He says, the Father is going to give you another advocate, another counselor, Um. And it's interesting that he uses this term, we're not going to pay attention to the advocate counselor piece as much as another, right? He's going to send you another counselor because you've had one here in me, Jesus seems to say, right? That as Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, as he introduces the person of the Holy Spirit, he says, the Holy Spirit is just going to be like me. I was your advocate counselor And I'm going to ask the Father to send another one, just like the one you've had. And Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans in verse 18. I will come to you, and I will dwell within you, he says in verse 20, just like the Holy Spirit will dwell within you in verse 17. right? He says that the Holy Spirit will come to you, and I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you too. Now, how is that possible if you're leaving unless the Holy Spirit who is coming to you is exactly like me. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to you, it's like me coming to you myself. And Jesus says before, just a few chapters before, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he goes, this spirit will be the spirit of truth. And later in verse 25, he says, the spirit will come from the Father, because I'll ask the Father to send him just like I came from the Father. Jesus says in verse 24, The world won't accept him, see him, or know him, just like the world did not accept me, see me, or know me as they should have. Jesus seems um, intent in just a few verses to say, look, I'm leaving, but the spirit who is coming is another counselor just like me, will dwell with you just like I dwelt with you, who will be rejected by the world just like I was rejected by the world, and who will be the truth just like I am the truth. The beauty is the spirit who is coming. You kind of already know because you know me, Jesus says. Jesus emphasizes the identity between him and the spirit. And this is, by the way, why we don't refer to the Holy Spirit as an it. Right? Um, The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the spirit of Jesus himself. So we don't refer, refer to the Holy Spirit as, well, it was doing this. Like it was some impersonal force wandering about there or with some sort of um, spiritual battery of of energy, but instead the Holy Spirit is a person. And um, the Greek uh, is interesting because it would be easy just to use kind of a neuter, but the pronouns all tend to be he because John seems to break grammar a little just to emphasize this is the spirit of a person, Jesus himself. And so acknowledges personhood and his desire for relationship. It's not just a power that will fill you. It's my presence, myself. And let's be clear, this doesn't diminish the personhood of the Holy Spirit by saying, well, the Holy Spirit is nothing more than Jesus. There are three persons in the Trinity, but it actually emphasizes the unity of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And for us, this is really good news, isn't it? It's good news because the things we love about Jesus are going to be true about the Spirit as well. We love Jesus' compassion, his transforming power, his love, his kindness, his gentleness, and all of that is true about the Spirit as well. He's not distant, foreign, or alien, or in this way that I think um, language like Holy Ghost and Holy Spirit suggests, right? Because I don't know about you, but I have no interest in ever meeting a ghost. I don't want to encounter a spirit in any way. They're, um, they're spooky, frankly, and um, not only spooky, but a little unpredictable. But Jesus says, if you know me, then you know the spirit because everything you delighted about in me will be true about the Spirit as well. It's not just that he's like Jesus, but the very presence of Jesus that we long for is provided for by the Holy Spirit. So I've had friends... um, who've said, you know, the best way for me to pray is actually to sit in a room and pull up a chair for myself and a second chair. And I actually try to pretend that God is sitting in that chair so that it moves me from kind of speaking into the air and into the ceiling because, frankly, my ceiling is uninspiring. But I try to remember that there's a person that I'm conversing with And the beauty of the chair, obviously, is it externalizes what's an internal truth for us. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. God Himself at your heart is beginning to speak to you. He's with you. This is why Jesus can say, right, I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He's not walking next to us as comforting and delightful as that may be, although odd looking to those people around us. But instead, I am with you because the Holy Spirit is with you. You are never alone. You will never be alone. As dark as the moment may be, I am there. As distant as you may feel from me, I am there. I don't know if any, you've had, any of you have had the chance to watch the movie Silence. Um, I haven't yet. I've just read the book, but it struck me if you've ever read the book um, as uh, the primary character experiences um, really the silence of God, which is what the book is. Uh, about how does God stay silent in the midst of terrible suffering, what's inescapable, particularly at the climactic moment, um, is the um, clear assertion, even when you feel forsaken, when you feel like you've been brought to the point of actually rejecting God himself, he still makes himself known, because the Holy Spirit is there. It's why... um, in my quiet times as I um, take notes about my Bible reading, I've realized that I need to write it in um, not the third person, here are the observations I'm making, here, you know, how I'm interpreting it, here's how to apply. I've been choosing to write my notes in the second person, um, directing them to God. Oh, this is what you're like. Here's what you are inviting me to do. I never saw this about you before because I'm trying um, with everything that I have to figure out how do I remind myself that I'm engaged in a conversation, an actual relationship with the Spirit that dwells within me, the Spirit of Jesus who is with me, rather than um, reducing God to some object that I'm studying. Um, He's the person with whom I speak. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. And this Holy Spirit continues to teach us about Jesus. There's this intriguing set of lines toward the end of the passage that we looked at in um, John 14, um, beginning in verses uh, 25 and 26. All this, right, and uh, we'll come back to that, I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave you. My peace I give you, I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your heart be troubled, and do not be afraid. The Holy Spirit's not just the Spirit of Jesus that dwells within us, assuring us um, of his presence, but the Holy Spirit teaches us about Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit's primary activity in this section of the text is to glorify Jesus, You'll notice that in verse 20 and following, one day he goes, Jesus says, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father, and that you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. How how do we have that experience of Jesus showing himself to us, of being assured of his love, of knowing the Father and knowing our place in him, right? How does that all happen? It's too easy, I think, for us to think, well, as long as you know um, what Scripture teaches, right, as an intellectual exercise, you should know it, and Jesus should reveal himself. And at one level, that would be true, but I suspect for all of us, particularly those of us who've journeyed in the faith longer, um, we've been pushed to places where um, the intellectual truth is insufficient to sustain us in knowing Jesus. We can know a lot about Jesus, but until we encounter him and speak to him and know that know that he speaks to us, the facts aren't enough. The facts define and shape what we know about the Lord, but until the Holy Spirit begins his work, they're just words on a page. I remember during one of the campus access controversies uh, that InterVarsity faced, these are times when university administrators have said, you know, your requirement that your student leaders affirm that they're Christians is discriminatory. It prevents non-Christians from being leaders of your chapters. And we've often said, you know, in fact, we're a Christian organization, we need the students who lead our Bible studies to believe the Bible study to be true, and to, if they're going to lead prayer and worship and do evangelism, it really helps for them to actually believe that this is true as opposed to factual. Well, um, I've also pointed out your non-discrimination policy should protect religious groups, not pre- penalize them for being religious groups, and it often doesn't go very far, but I was meeting with the chancellor of a large university system one time, and he said, you know, we could get around this because um, you can't discriminate on the basis of religion, but you could do just a Bible quiz of some sort to screen out people because knowledge is an a, a, a appropriate way to discriminate against people, which is fair, right? We're at a university. We've already discriminated on the basis of intelligence in the um, admissions process and continue to do it with every class that they take. <laughs> He said, why can't you just do a Bible test? Wouldn't that screen out all the non-believers and then um, you could have the leaders you want and it's a way for us to do what we want and for you to do what you want. And he was so pleased with himself. right? Like, I thought of this great idea. It could just be a Bible test. And um, I said, you know, um, I appreciate your your desire to help. I really do, but um, it's not enough just to know what the Bible says. I said, you know, you have faculty, I suspect, at one of your universities who know far more about the scripture and its composition, its history, than most of my students ever will. And they would not be acceptable Bible study leaders for the rest of the students in the group. Why? Because they don't believe it to be true. They don't actually believe the Lord is speaking through it. They're great as professors in the university and my students should really take those classes. But when we approach the scripture, it's not just for abstract intellectual information, though we certainly want to do that. We expect to encounter the Lord. And a leader who doesn't believe that the Lord speaks shouldn't be teaching from the scriptures in a Bible study. In a classroom, yes. In a Bible study, not so much. And it's very hard for that professor to lead us into prayer to a God they don't believe in or to sing songs, which even for Christians strain our credulity sometimes to be, it just does not work. How does that happen that we actually enter into that kind of relationship where Jesus is revealed and we understand how we are in the Lord and the Lord is in us and we are all in the Father? It's because the Holy Spirit has come and that's being revealed to us. The Holy Spirit points us to Jesus. Not only does he point us and glorify Jesus in that way, he communicates the truth of Jesus through the scriptures. Look again at verses 25 and 26. Look, I, I think Jesus has been talking about the Spirit and how what's going to happen will happen after he leaves. And the the apostles look dumbfounded, I suspect. This is my mental reimagining of this scene, right? He's been saying, like, don't let your heart, oh, I'm sorry, the words you hear now I own, they belong to the one who sent me and will come to them and live in them. And I think the disciples are just thinking, like, what are you talking about? This makes no sense. And I, that's why I think Jesus says in verse 25, look, all this I have spoken while still with you. <laughs> but don't worry. Because I, he's like, you, you clearly don't understand and it's going to be Okay. The Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I said to you. Um, Jesus goes, I've said a lot of things to you in these last three years, most of which you have not understood at all. (laughs) And it's clear, and it's going to be really clear in about the next 24 hours that you understood almost nothing of what was really important. Don't be afraid. The Holy Spirit's going to come. When you need it, he will remind you of what I've said. He'll instruct you on all the things that didn't make sense while I was still with you. Don't be afraid. You're going to know what you need to know. Um, that was good news for the apostles. It really paid off for them as their reflections at the end of Luke and Acts and through the rest of the epistles played out. It's good news for us because, in fact, that's one of the main reasons we actually have some confidence in the Gospels as adequate and sufficient pointers to who Jesus is, right? They're decent biography or gospel, which is a particular genre, um, they continue to be demonstrated to be historically reasonable. But the reason we have confidence in what was eventually handed down to us in the New Testament is Frankly, this passage, when Jesus says to you, don't worry, years later, when you need it, the Holy Spirit will remind you of all the things that I said. And it's going to be enough. It's going to be sufficient. So that as you teach what I teach, as you teach the words that I taught, as you tell people about my life, they are going to encounter me. I think about this all the time because one of our favorite ways to introduce people to Jesus in introversity is to invite them to a Bible study. Now, normally we think about people responding in preaching, and a lot of students are coming to faith during preaching, but our favorite way to introduce people to Jesus is actually to say, hey, let's open up a book of the Bible together. Do you want to start studying Mark with me? And let's just see who Jesus is. Because I can talk about Jesus reasonably compellingly, but there is something about Jesus in the text of the scripture that people just start going, he's really like that? For people who think that he's just a nice religious figure, they watch him begin to interact with the Pharisees, and they realize he's not just nice, he's a little sharp. has kind of jagged edges at times. And people who think he's mean and judgmental encounter him um, with people who are struggling with sin. They think, I've never known or could imagine God was quite so compassionate. For those who feel trapped by their own lives, they begin to see his power to heal and to challenge systems and structures, and he thinks maybe there's a way forward, maybe there's a way out for us. For people who seem locked in by their own prejudices and their own beliefs, he begins to say, there's another way forward. God can do far more, immeasurably more than you could ask or imagine. Um, When we encounter Jesus in the scriptures, it has life because Jesus says, look, I told the apostles the Holy Spirit will guide them to what they need to know. And what I love is it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the words of Scripture, but also it's the Holy Spirit's teaching about Jesus that will lead us to obedience to Jesus. Um, Jesus says right at verse 15 and also verse 21, those who love me are going to obey me. And then he says right after that in verse 16, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit. I'm going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to you. What's the connection between if you love me, keep my commands, and I'm going to ask the Father to send the Holy Spirit to you? Well, the Holy Spirit reminds us of the commands of Jesus. That's what he's promised to do. And simultaneously, he empowers us to obey what the scriptures command. And those of us who live the faith a little longer know that to be true, right? Right? Um, our own experience, I don't know how many of you still do New Year's resolutions or have just given up with the idea entirely because you know they rarely last more than a few weeks unless you are particularly, you're particularly built of sterner stuff than I. Um, but the reality is um, we can all seem nice for about an hour and a half to two hours at a time. We can all, by sheer dint dint of will, um, work at a resolution for a few weeks at a time, but lifelong sustained change um, is actually far beyond our capacities. I mean, we can make some small lifestyle changes as we go, but to change our hearts, to move from a position of um, ethnocentricity and racism to a place where I think, no matter how different we are, you are part of the body of Christ with me, I would be willing to sacrifice anything for you because you are family at a way deeper to me than any DNA could possibly make me requires a move of the Holy Spirit, right? To approach somebody who's hurt you and wounded you time after time and to say, I love you and I will forgive you, not just seven times, but 70 times seven day after day, week after week, year after year, mostly I'm thinking of course in the context of marriage and family but in so many other contexts as well, requires far more than most of us are able to muster up. It requires a move of the Holy Spirit. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength seems nearly impossible when you think of it because there's so many other nice things to love just nearby. For me, um, I think of my children who I love intensely, and I think they may be the greatest bits of idolatry that I've ensconced deeply into my home because I love them immeasurably. And yet I know the Lord desires me to love him more, and I don't know how that's possible given how much I love my children. And yet he invites me to trust the Holy Spirit, to pray prayers like I did when Madeline was first put in my arms in the living room. Lord, I'm not going to pray for her safety right now because I know that's purely selfish. I haven't had enough time to love this one, but I know I want to protect my heart. So instead, I'm going to trust you with her. And I find every day I have to retrain myself to pray that prayer. Because really what I want is my child's safety, in part because I love her, but more because I want to protect my own heart. And what God says to me every day is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Come follow me, Greg. And I want to say, let me play with my children first. And he says follow me and trust me with your children. I can't do it without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit reminds me of the text of scripture, but thanks be to God, he actually empowers me slowly (laughs) and gently, not over minutes, sometimes over decades, to begin to become the kind of person that he desires me to be. For some of us, the change is instantaneous. Praise God, I'm so envious of you. Um, but for me, at least, um, the change from selfish to selflessness is a lo- I have a long journey ahead, and I suspect so do all of us. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit is at work. He's given the apostles the words of scripture that we can now read. He empowers us to obey it, and he continues to illuminate what it is as we begin to read it. It strikes me if the Holy Spirit inspires the words of Scripture, if he gives the apostles a remembrance of who Jesus was and what he said so that they could begin to inscribe these texts to us, it's primarily for that reason then that we teach that whatever the Holy Spirit continues to say to us will actually be consistent with the Scriptures that he already gave to us. Right? If he actually gave us these words, he's not going to suddenly go, ah, 90-degree left turn, let's go somewhere else right now. But as he speaks to us, and I think he does, in our times of prayer, through the conversations that we have with another believer, for some of us in dreams or visions or in palpable words, um, occasionally through the uh, words of a sermon, whatever he, the, is from the Holy Spirit in the end will be consistent with what the Holy Spirit has already said. Because he's the one who's given it to us. And then praise be to God that he continues to act. How do we have some confidence as a church in a world filled with division, hate, bloodshed, and death? To have an accurate witness to the mind of God. To be the people of God in those places so not only do we speak, but we act We protest, we support, we affirm, and we criticize all in the ways that Jesus would do himself were he here in the deep belief that he already is. How do we engage our families um, with all of their complexities in their relationships, filled with joy and pain, hurt, and woundedness? It'd be easier if Jesus were here, but we believe he is. How do we approach the difficulties of our own life moving forward with its, all of its uncertainties? It'd be easier if Jesus were here just walking along with us, and yet we believe from this text he is. Now, nothing about the Holy Spirit's presence obviously relieves us of the responsibility to think well and hard. Nothing about the Holy Spirit's presence guarantees that we will have immediate clarity or that we will know every time what we need to do. But what we have, in fact, is not just a set of instructions, a map to take us somewhere. We actually have a belief that we have a guide who will accompany us, who will point us in the right direction, who will point us to Jesus, who will immerse us in his word and begin to give us the strength to be changed by it. And that's good news. In a world where it's okay to be smart, but what we desperately need is wisdom. Wisdom has come and dwells within us. Let me pray. Holy Spirit, I'm grateful that you consistently and faithfully point us to Jesus. I'm grateful for the way that everything that we long for about Jesus' presence is offered through you. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here as well as for me. Open my eyes to hear the voice of Jesus in the scriptures and to see his person. Um, Equip me to become the kind of person that Jesus longs for me to be so that uh, I and my brothers and sisters here and around the world can do the things that you've called us to do. Would we demonstrate your justice and your mercy? Would we demonstrate uh, your love And your wrath at sin, would we demonstrate your wisdom and your life transforming hope? Point us to Jesus, we pray. Amen.